Let's now turn, first of all, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll read the first 15 verses. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. We have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. And in con connection uh, with uh, this, we turn to our text in Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to read verses 11 through the first few words of uh, verse 14. Ephesians 6 verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been uh, considering from this passage the fact that we face uh, spiritual enemies, deadly enemies, and we are no match for them in ourselves, but rather only in the Lord. Only by virtue of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, only by his power and protection and strength can we resist and wage spiritual battle against these enemies. And uh, we'll consider in time that the Lord has indeed provided us with uh, armor and uh, with weapons uh, with which we might fight against these spiritual enemies. But the best of armor and weapons are useless uh, without, without 
the heart for the fight, if you will, without the will uh, to resist. And four times in our text this morning, this resistance is described, and it's described with a repeated summons to stand, to stand fast. We are to put on the armor of God that we may be able to stand. We are to uh, take up the armor of God that we may be able to withstand. Same idea, to withstand the assault of the evil one by standing firm. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. So there's no question that uh, this idea of, of standing uh, immovable, remaining steadfast, is repeated as a matter of critical importance for the Christian life and warfare. Be strong in the Lord in order to stand against your enemies. Now, there, there are various uh, descriptions of the Christian life in, uh, in the Bible, word pictures that capture something of, of what it means to, to follow in the way, to walk in the way. In fact, the word walk is one of those repeated uh, words that uh, communicate this imagery of the Christian life as a, as a journey, uh, making ongoing progress, a steady advance towards a destination. In that sense, yes, the Christian life is such a walk. Uh, but the Christian life is also described as a, as a race. We're running a race. Now, these aren't in conflict with each other, but they express uh, a different aspect of the Christian life. To run a race requires perseverance. It requires endurance in the face of difficulties, exhaustion, tiredness. And it's a race that is aimed at, again, at a goal, but uh, in the world in which Paul writes, it is uh, an activity that's aimed at obtaining a prize. It's aimed at winning. Now, there's another picture in our text, and that is the picture of a soldier, obviously, but it's a soldier who is under attack. And the great challenge for us as Christian soldiers is to hold our ground or to keep the faith, not to fall, not to turn aside from our position, not to lose what we have or what we have gained. See, all those uh, words that the Scripture uses to exhort Christians to... Uh, stand strong in the faith, they all involve a kind of conservative uh, approach and a way of thinking about the Christian life. The Christian life involves maintaining a position. It involves uh, holding your ground, not being turned aside, not turning back, not going into wrong pathways, not being pushed down, pushed over, but standing your ground. There are many such words that communicate this idea. They're they're repeated often in Scripture. I, I encourage you, as you read the Bible, as you read the New Testament, take note of how often we have such exhortations that really amount to various ways of emphasizing the need to hold fast. In fact, those words, hold fast are repeatedly used also. Not lose what you have. Second John, verse 8. Revelation 2, verse 25. We are to hold fast. The idea is repeated in verse 11 of chapter 3. 
Now we might say, well, that sounds rather, rather pessimistic, rather negative. What about, what about positive conquest going forward in victory? Well, yes. From battle unto battle. Yes, indeed. From strength to strength. But we must not think of the Christian warfare uh, like a, like a blitzkrieg, like German tanks just rolling over France without opposition. Perhaps a better comparison, the horrors of World War I and its trench warfare, where soldiers were dug in and they tried to maintain their position against assault. And it was long and arduous and bloody. And perhaps that's also uh, a biblical picture of the Christian life. Change is not always good. And uh, whatever triumphal views we ought to have about the Christian life, it's not a breezy kind of confidence, certainly not a breezy kind of self-confidence, as if there's no big deal, no difficulties in maintaining the Christian position. That betrays pride and ignorance about the nature of this battle. Rather than humility, we are to stand fast. We are to maintain a a firm grip. We are not to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. We are to fight. We are to fight to stand. To again go to that uh, language, that word repeated in our text. Stand. Stand against uh, the wiles of the devil. We read 2 Corinthians 11, and we read in verse 3 of Paul's concern that the Corinthians would be influenced by these super apostles, these false apostles with their grandiose claims and their impressive approach. He says, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, by twisting the truth, by insinuating lies into the mind of Eve, inviting her to step aside from under the word of God, to change her position as a receiver of God's word, to a judge, an evaluator of God's word. And by his craftiness, he deceived her. I fear that your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity of Christ. Yes, Satan's wiles, his strategies are deceptive, they're crafty, we need to stand against them. What What is the methodology of Satan? What is his approach? In, in broad strokes, we might say, well, there are basically two approaches to Satan's strategy, two common methods of attack. The one, we might say, is a frontal assault, overt persecution and opposition, where he seeks to uh, literally destroy the church, to ruin Christians by killing them. In Revelation chapter uh, 2, verse verse 10, we read in uh, these words to the church in Smyrna, it says, Do not fear any of those things which are about you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Isn't that remarkable? The devil is about to throw you into prison. Does that mean that the devil appeared at their doorstep and literally hauled them off? No, it meant that his agents, his instruments, people, 
full of hatred and malice against Christ and his church, would imprison some of these saints and seek to destroy them, to destroy their faith and their very lives. He seeks to destroy the church by elimination. He tries to terrify Christians into turning away from the Lord. In Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 27 and 28, Paul says, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. Yes, Satan and uh, wicked men under his influence would seek to terrify Christians so that they fall from their steadfastness in fear, fear for their lives. So that's a main strategy. And, of course, the exhortation that's repeated in Scripture in this connection is don't fear. Don't live in fear. Don't even be afraid of those who can kill the body. And after that, there's no more than they can do. But secondly, Satan tries to destroy by by deception. We read of that also in in Second Corinthians, where we're alerted to his uh, his methods again using human instruments. Paul speaks of these uh, false teachers, false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Jesus warned us of uh, against false prophets who come in sheep's clothing. They appear to be innocent, maybe attractive persons, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. He's been doing that down through the centuries, drawing people away to follow these charismatic cult leaders or charismatic preachers and teachers within the church of Jesus Christ drawing them away with smooth words, presenting a beautiful appearance, an attractive style, winning people with th- with words of love. And behind it lies the wicked one and his deceptive power. He tries to entice people away from the truth of the gospel. And the exhortation of Scripture in view of these strategies is watch and pray. Beware of this approach. I suppose I could leave it up uh, to you to evaluate which of these strategies is the greatest danger and threat for us today. But in broad uh, strokes, these are often the ways in which Satan tr- tries to remove Christians from their confession. Another way that uh, involves a little bit more specificity, a little more detail in terms of Satan's methods, is that Satan aims at opposite extremes. And you see that even the way some people think about about Satan. Some would exaggerate his power. Some would live in fear of Satan. They're always talking about the devil. And they are in, in danger of being being drawn into a, a view of spiritual warfare that involves kind of superstitious ideas of using spells and incantations and exhortation. Uh, ex, uh, I forgot the word. Um, ways in which they would resist the the, the devil. In that way. On the other hand, there are those that would, that would deny or underestimate, uh, the power of Satan. Satan also tries to drive the church to extremes. And we have an example of this actually in, uh, the church at Corinth. On the one hand, they were neglecting to exercise discipline. 
they were tolerating gross sin in the congregation and taking some kind of uh, pride in their broad-mindedness, very likely, their charity in accepting this situation in which a man was actually living in an incestuous relationship with his father's wife. And in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul, in the name of the Lord, calls them to put away from themselves this wicked person who is showing his sin by indulging in this kind of conduct in the church of Christ. And so the church repented of their their negligence and they exercised uh, discipline and removed this member. But you know what happened after that? This man repented and the church was slow to receive him back. And Paul in his second epistle exhorts them to forgive him lest he be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. And then he says, for we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. Recognize that Satan has a hand in driving people to extremes. And there's an example. One of uh, the extremes that Satan would drive people to is to uh, elevate peace above the truth or destroy unity over minor things. Satan often disguises himself not only as an angel of light, but as an angel of light preaching peace. I actually listened to an, an interview, I think it was on Fox News last week, of a, of a, of a preacher. And he was talking about listening to the, the voice of God, listening to um, God's message to us. And I was thinking, when is he going to start talking about the Bible? But I think the question was asked about how do you know it's God's word? He says, well, if it's, a, if it's an answer of peace, then it's from God. And I thought, false prophet, bingo. If there's one characteristic of the false prophet in the Old Testament, it's peace, peace, when there is no peace. If there's one outstanding characteristic of false teachers in the professing church today, it's the way is wide that leads to life. It's broad. Come on in, everyone. Don't worry about your sin. God forgives don't worry about following rules. Don't get anxious about anything. Be at peace. Everything is fine. And that's the way Satan deludes so many people. By a false message of peace. Peace when there is no peace. And if you can't achieve that, he would come as an accuser, as a talebearer, stirring up strife, producing animosity and enmity among people that really are one in the faith and ought to stand together and recognize how Satan seeks to destroy unity and create division and stir up our sinful passions. Or here's another way. Again, it's a very basic way. He tries to cause doubt and distress to believers as they experience their weakness in sin in such a way as to lead them to despair, in such a way as to lead them to uh, guilty depression and doubts. And then on the other hand, he tries to keep hypocrites in the grip of a false security, a false kind of confidence. On the one hand, there is the danger of despair and unbelief. And on the other hand, there is a danger of presumption, a false kind of security. And if, and if Satan can drive people to either extreme, he's happy because both of these extremes keep people away from Christ, right? That's what he wants. 
He wants some people to think that their sins are so small that they don't need a Savior. And on the other hand, he wants people to think that their sins are so great and there's so many that Christ is not able or willing to save them. And with either view, people don't come to Christ. And Satan achieves his goals. Know your enemy. That's the first rule of of warfare. We need to know those remedies against Satan's attacks. We need to stand fast. And remember how Jesus countered Satan's temptations every time? It is written. It is written. He lived not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know, there's a there's a classic uh booklet and you know if you're uh frightened away by Puritan authors because they're difficult to read. Thomas Brooks is one of the clearest and simplest to read. And he's got this volume. It's in our church library in his works. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And it's a classic book of describing Satan's methods and giving biblical counsel to Christians to recognize uh, his wiles and to stand against them. William Gurnall, a volume like that thick on Ephesians chapter 6 called The Christian in Complete Armor. Yes, our spiritual ancestors, they were very much aware of this conflict and they were faithful uh, shepherds to guide people in uh, withstanding Satan's ploys. We must stand strong in the Lord, in the Lord alone, right? In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. Here in the love of Christ, I stand. Stands afore, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. That's a quotation from John chapter 10. Till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. I stand, I will stand. In Christ alone. Against the wiles of the devil. Secondly, stand in the evil day. Verse 13. Therefore take up the whole armor of God. A a repetition. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. The evil day. Makes you wonder what that is, right? Well, we might uh, say that every day is an evil day. Uh, going back to what we read in uh, in chapter 5, there in verse 16, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Galatians 1 says that we have been delivered from this present evil age. We've been delivered from it in terms of its deceptive ruling power in our lives. But this present age is characterized in God's word as evil. And that's the way it will be until Christ returns. We do not look for a kind of millennium. We do not look for such a rule of Christ on the whole world as if evil were largely eradicated. And this description of a present evil world no longer applies. In the biblical perspective, there are two ages, this age and the age to come. And this present age is an evil age. And the age to come is an age of glory when Christ returns. 
We do not look for such a millennia on this age, in this age, that will somehow make this description, this inspired description, no longer true. But there are also specific days. There are specific times of temptation and danger. And we must always have our guard up. There are no sabbaticals in this Christian warfare. There are no vacations. I remember uh, years ago, uh, Mr. Vindusberg would often take Diane and I to the airport. We'd leave our car at their house. And on more than one occasion, when he said bye, he'd say, have a good and godly vacation. And that always struck me, right? And it's like, yeah, vacation time is a time in which you let your guard down, right? Vacation time can be a time in which you slack off in your Bible reading and other Christian disciplines. And vacation time can be a time of, uh, of indulgence and excess and be an evil day, time of temptation. There are no vacations in uh, our call for vigilance. That doesn't mean we can't enjoy ourselves and relax and enjoy God's good gifts. We know that. But it doesn't mean that vacation time is a time to be away from accountability where nobody knows me and I don't have to worry about running into so-and-so when I go here or there. No, we're always under the eye of God. There are a variety of specific times of temptation and danger. And they may not be times when it's obvious that things are going badly. Times when we th- uh, feel vulnerable and weak. You know, days when we think that we stand are days in which we need to take heed lest we fall. Jesus warned Peter of Satan's desire to destroy his faith. Jesus warned his disciples of a of an hour of temptation, special temptation that was approaching. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. In Jesus' letter to the churches in, in uh, Revelation 2, verse 10, and 3, verse 10, Jesus promises a faithful church that they will be, that they will be preserved in the day of temptation that is coming upon the whole earth. It's important to know when we are facing evil days in our own life, individually, and to identify what's really going on in these terms that enables us to gain some objectivity about our situation so that we can, in effect, say to ourselves, I'm being tempted. I'm in an evil day. Satan is being allowed to assault me. This is it. This is what he's doing. This is what my temptation is. This is what I must do to resist it and to withstand it. We don't just see events as just random circumstances that are difficult. We recognize that in God's wise providence and because of the malice of the enemy, there may be certain times in our lives where we are facing a crisis. It's very helpful to be able to identify. Oh, yes, this is it. I'm in it right now. I'm in this crucible. God is testing me. I need to be aware of what's happening. And I need God to help me. It can be a great and and loving uh, service sometimes for Christian brothers and sisters to speak to someone whom they see possibly ensnared with temptation. Say, brother, you know, it appears that you are really being tempted. This seems to be a real time of testing for you. Know that no temptation has befallen you, but what is common to man. And God, with the temptation, is able to provide a way of escape so that you might bear it. But this is a temptation. It's good to know it. 
In a time of testing, we can lose our spiritual bearings. We can, we can fail to see what's really happening to us. A couple of years ago, my, my brother-in-law had a, well, for many years, he had a, an older friend. He worked for him. Uh, he did chores for him on his farm. They went, ascend, attended the same church together. This man was very, very quick and ready to talk about spiritual things at the age of 81. As a total shock to everyone, he took his own life. At 81, without any terminal illness, without any obvious problems that people could recognize, what was going on in his mind? Now, I think many of us would be quick to say, well, he must have been suffering from some kind of mental illness. Right? It's only mental illness that could account for suicide. Well, yes, indeed. When people get into a frame of mind where there's no hope, when they're unable to think of the consequences of their action for others, or they just don't care. Yes, yes, we might say the mind is off track. And maybe it's uh, uh, combined with other things that would uh, characterize a kind of clinical definition of mental illness. But whatever mental illness we might suffer or face, we must not think that the spiritual element is altogether removed from the picture. Or we must not forget that the evil one may not be involved tempting us. Leading us to think that really, actually, all what we need is maybe some professional counseling from a secular therapist or I need more medication or something like that. And be oblivious to the spiritual conflict that we're in. Now, that isn't, again, rule out the value of professional counsel or uh, medication. But whatever the case, we must realize also that there's a spiritual battle going on in times of depression and distress, anxiety. And trouble of mind. That doesn't mean that we're possessed with the devil. Right? That's what some people would say. No, it means that we're involved in spiritual warfare. And we need spiritual means of help. We need the good counsel of God's word. As whether, as well as perhaps in some instances, some professional counsel of people that are uh, experienced specifically with the nature of our particular problems. But we need to be no, aware of what's going on. Maybe you're at such a time in your life right now, a time of temptation, an evil day. It may be a time of great change in your personal life or in your family life. A time in which you may be tempted to, to give up the fight. And along with that, perhaps a temptation to find comfort and relief in worldly solutions. Or to find some kind of, some kind of soothing antidote to your Sorrow in nursing self-pity. That can be addictive. Do, do you realize that when we allow ourselves to fall into a pattern of self-pity, that there's a great danger that we would become enslaved to that way of thinking? And we don't realize that this is a battle we need to fight. We need to resist such thoughts. Or we can fall into substance abuse, ways of escaping our misery. Those are very common temptations that we face, brothers and sisters, in times of trouble. It may be a time of testing where things may be going good for you, maybe really good. Maybe you've got a lot of associates and friends. And maybe those friends are worldly people, but they're very interesting, attractive, and funny people who do a lot of fun things. And they're drawing you into the ways of this world. Or maybe a physical sickness that can become a fiery trial or a time of loneliness, a time of loss, a time of grief, 
You know, a time of grief can also be a time of temptation because there is a biblical and a necessary process of grieving and sadness. But there's also a temptation that we can go overboard and we can fail to uh, resist the tendency to focus upon our loss and sorrow at the expense of a call to joy, a call to faith, a call to consider others, a call to see God's positive purpose in our lives to serve him. I don't say that in an unsympathetic way, but in all circumstances, we may face temptations where the the evil one would try to get an advantage over us. And even sorrow and loss can be one of those occasions. Realize what's happening. Pray the Psalms. I might even say, live in the Psalms. Read Psalms every day. Make them your prayer. Cry out along with David. Consider my enemies, O Lord, for they are many, and they hate me with a cruel hatred. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Be strong in the Lord to stand in the evil day. And then thirdly, to stand and to keep standing. That you may withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. It's almost like, was that really necessary? Okay, we got it. Point being, this is a continual activity of our Christian lives as long as we live. A victory doesn't mean the end of the war. Jesus achieved a smashing victory over Satan when he was tempted in the wilderness. And what are we told? Satan departed from him for a season. Oh, he was coming back. The hour of power would, or the hour of darkness would, would come upon the Lord Jesus yet. David uh, achieved smashing victories. He killed the enemy of the Lord. He killed Goliath with, with a stone, cut off his head, and was soon hailed as a champion in Israel who had killed his tens of thousands and was exalted in power, who ruled over the surrounding nations. And then in his 50s, he succumbed to the allure of a beautiful woman that he observed from his housetop and ended up committing adultery and murder. One can face a thousand temptations and come out unscathed. And nobody notices. Nobody is applauding. He said, you know, you did really well there. You faced some hard time and uh, you, you survived. Good for you. People don't know the kinds of struggles, the personal trials that we might have and face. And you might have a thousand victories and yet one hard fall. One hard fall can destroy uh, a man's reputation and usefulness in the church. Life is short, we say, and it is, but it takes a long time when you're in the middle of it and you're facing all different kinds of changes in your life, your life circumstances, your health, your relationships, and they're all attended with challenges to stand fast in the Lord. Each age may have its own unique temptations, temptations that are unique to the teenagers. I remember them very vividly. I remember 15, 16 years old. It's like coming alive to the world, coming alive to my own strengths and my own passions, coming alive to the attractiveness of other people and my attractiveness to them, coming alive to the opportunities, the accessibility of all kinds of enjoyments. It can hold such a power over young people that in the name of having fun, they're drawn into a lifestyle that will destroy their souls. 
Jesus saves the best wine for last. That was the title of a sermon by Spurgeon, contrasting Satan's uh, strategy. He serves the best up front. And after he's got people hooked, then he draws them into his power and destroys them. Teenage years can be a time of temptation. Or, you know, I've seen this also. Young people do very well through high school. Maybe they get into their 20s, and then they go off the rails. Maybe it's higher education. Maybe it's a relationship. But they appeared to do so well in high school. They were devoted members of the church. They made profession of faith. They seemed to be really good kids. And then, what happened? Middle age has its dangers. Living the daily grind, keeping to the straight life, can wear a person down with discontent, perhaps a desire for a worldly escape, the option and the appeal of new thrills. Sometimes the severest test can come in old age. Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he falls. Sometimes those tests come in the way of losses or experiences that uh, could tend to embitter people, make angry old men and women out of people, make them cynical and self-centered. Pray that you'll be a gracious old person if you reach that age and recognize that sometimes people in their final years can be pretty cranky and miserable. We don't want to be that way. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his grace is sufficient for every trial. He is able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by him. And whatever our circumstance, whatever our temptation, whatever our failures, whatever our past, we may come to him and know that he's able to save us. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is a faithful saying. It's worthy of all acceptance. We keep coming to the Savior. We keep relying on him. Paul expressed that confidence and that outlook. When he faced disappointment, he's facing persecution, opposition for the sake of the gospel. And where are his friends? All forsook me. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. What a gracious man. Praying for God's mercy on those who betrayed him, who abandoned him in his need. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Now, some have said that uh, that may be a reference to being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. I don't know that, but I do know one lion who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And that's the evil one. Christ delivered him from that lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.